Good morning. So, uh, I, a few years ago, um, this has been a, not more than a few years ago, my oldest daughter was at the Mall of America, and she was riding some of the rides, and I, you know, she, was, she happened to be by herself on this one ride, I don't know, maybe it's one of those ones that I couldn't handle, but she was by herself. And so she got on this ride, and they put her together with this other girl about her age, and then, you know, they went around spinning around or whatever, and she got off, and she told me this uh, conversation that she had had with this girl. And she said, uh, I talked to her about Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's so awesome, you know, wonderful. And she's like, yeah, I said that, um, you know, Jesus died and uh, that he was buried and that he rose again, but not in a zombie way. That was her explanation of, (laughs) and I was like, that, you know, that totally makes sense. You know, when you talk about somebody coming back from the dead, it's not necessarily a pretty picture. So we need to qualify. We need to clarify. So, so proud of her. In, uh, in this series uh, called Begin Again, we have, you know, we, w- we worked our way up to Easter Sunday, and we celebrated the resurrection. And I had at least one person mention to me, like, you know, we do this, you know, you, you, you talk about the resurrection, and then boom, it's dropped, and, you know, we go on to something else. But we should talk about, like, what does the resurrection actually mean? What does it mean? And how does it play a role in our lives, and the way that we think, and the way that we interact and view with the world? And that's, it's a great idea. It's a great question, because it's not just about Jesus coming back from the dead, but not in a zombie way. It's about us, and it's about our lives, and it's about here and now, and it's about our Sunday afternoon, it's about our Monday morning morning. The, the resurrection plays a role in, in, in every aspect of our lives because it was an identity-shifting moment. Just like we take on, you know, when you become a father, or last week we talked about becoming a homeowner, anytime you, you change identity, that changes your behavior. It changes the way you engage with the world, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an identity-shifting moment for humanity, and it changed everything. So we've been exploring this idea. Jesus shows up, right? He shows up on the scene and he's teaching this incredible stuff and people are like, yeah, that's good. This is very intriguing. This is very interesting. I want to hear more. And they were following him around. And then, and then he gets killed because he was a threat to the religious authority and he was killed by the Romans and they were very good at killing people. They had done it many, many times. He was killed. He was buried. And then these guys, these, these followers, it wasn't just guys, it was women. Remember we talked about uh, this a few weeks ago that it was the women who didn't actually give up on Jesus. The guys all ran away, but the women stuck with it. Uh, but they were like, what? Well, what now? There's nothing like this, this guy died and, and now what? Evidently, the way that he taught us to live, this is what it leads you to. It leads you to this type of death and now, now we have nothing. And then he rose again and, the, and they met him. They talked to him. They interacted with him. They, they ate breakfast with him. And you can imagine that just would have been like, it would have blown out all your categories for how the world works. Like, this guy was dead, and now he's back. We got to re- what were all those things you were telling us? Because we got to write them down. When we meet people who do things like beat cancer or get over a sickness, or, or when we meet people who, who raise children well, we want to talk with them and say, tell us your secrets, because we want to know. Man, when you meet someone that beat death, you want to know, what are the secrets? How did you do that? Like, what, what do I need to know? And Jesus was happy to tell people. But it was an identity-shifting moment uh, for, for the people that followed him. In fact, even the smallest things that Jesus did had this huge impact because he had come back from the dead. So if you remember, those of you that have gone to church quite a while, you may remember there was this one guy that Jesus showed up to kind of a little late in the game, this this guy named Paul, he was also known as Saul, but this guy that had just, he hated the church, hated Christians, hated this whole thing, and Jesus literally says 
two sentences to him, and it changed the trajectory of his life. Two sentences. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Rise up and go to that city, and you'll be shown what to do. And Paul's life was dramatically changed, not because of what those two sentences contained, but because of who said them and because of his relationship with death. It changed everything. We, you should, you should listen pretty carefully to someone that has beaten death. I mean, that, that just, like, you have the floor. Tell us how this works. Tell us about life. Tell us your thoughts. We've got to listen pretty carefully to someone that literally beat death. So today I want to explore the most um, direct, obvious impact that the resurrection has on our lives, but it's one that maybe we don't think about or don't talk about that often. But the most, I think it's the most direct, clear, when we talk about it, you're going to be like, oh yeah, of course, that, that makes the most sense, but it's not one that we, we think about uh, very often. It doesn't get a lot of airtime. But to do that, I want to illustrate this fascinating story from this guy named Paul. Um, some people think his name changed it different. He had a Jewish form of his name and a Greek form of his name, and he was just called both depending on the settings he was in. But it was this guy named Paul, and, and he has this, just this, the Bible is so fascinating, but there's this particular story in his life that I think we just run right by, but the implications of what's going on are pretty, are, are pretty profound. So uh, remember, you, he's met Jesus and Paul thinks everybody needs to know this truth. So he literally hits the road on a world tour. He's just going to go city to city, and he's going to say, hey, this guy was dead, and he's back, and it's pretty, it's game-changing. And so, as you can imagine, he got mixed reviews where he went. Some people were like, okay, tell us more, and some people were like, no, this is this absolutely crazy. That's insane. Some people recognized that truth as a threat to their way of living and got upset at him for the threat that he posed to what they did and what they were doing. So I, I, I would never, I shouldn't say I would never, but I, my, this is going to be a little more insight into my life than, than you want, but my favorite, my favorite subject in high school was geography, and I think that probably ranks near the bottom of the list for most people, but I love it. Like, I can literally get lost in Google Maps, you know, you just, you're just like, oh, I just want to explore just everything, so I love geography. Normally, I would not subject you to this, but I think the geography is important to the story, so just real quick, if you could just, like, I know you guys, you love science and math and all that other stuff, but I love geography. Real quick, I just want to point out where this story took place because it's important to the story. So I got, a, I got a picture up here. Paul's on this world tour and he's in what is in Asian Minor, modern day Turkey, and he's going around to three different cities. You go to the next slide. He's got uh, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. If you're a real Bible nerd, there's more than one Antioch if you're wondering. If you're really like, I'm taking notes, that doesn't look right. Well, there's more than one Antioch and this is the other one, okay? Lesser known one. And it's all, all this takes place in that circle right there. This whole story takes place in that circle. All right, so um, it's, in the, it's in the book of Acts chapter 14. He stops in this place called Antioch. They kick him out. He goes to Iconium, which is a little further away. And they're like, this guy, we got to kill this guy. Oh, that's serious. And so he gets out of there and he goes to Lystra. And the story that we're reading uh, takes place in Lystra. And it's Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Acts chapter 14, verse 19, if you want to take your Bibles and look over there. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, where he had been, then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium uh, came and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city. 
All right, so stoning unfortunately still happens in our world today, but it involves taking large rocks and throwing them at another human being until you think that human being is dead. It's a crazy thing, but it happens. Things like that have happened in our world, and it's usually pretty effective. So in terms of reception, in terms of Paul preaching, I think I have this slide up there, the the verses, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 14. But in terms of Paul preaching, this was, like, it could have gone better. This could have gone better. Like, I've been fortunate. I haven't had sermons that don't, I've had sermons that don't always go well, but I've never been stoned to this point. And I've been bummed about how they went, and I felt, you know, but I've never had somebody pick up large rocks and throw them at me till they thought I was dead. So that's what's happening. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. They thought he was dead, verse 20, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up. Oh, all right. Well, that's interesting. He wasn't dead. He got up. The disciples gathered around him. That's why, you know, they're looking at his body. Somebody's feeling the pulse like, whoa, what's going on here? And then it says that he actually got up. Whoa, okay. Now, most of us would look at this situation and they'd be like, well, these people do not want to hear about Jesus. So closed door, let's move on, hit the road, we'll go to the next town. But this is what this verse says. Verse, four, uh, verse 20, he got up and he went back into the city. The same city that they had thrown rocks at him until they thought he was dead and dragged him outside of the city, dusted himself off, limped back into the city. That, that's absolutely bonkers. That is absolutely bonkers. You don't do this sort of thing unless your fundamental relationship with the idea of death has changed. This is nuts. Back into the city. But it goes on. It's actually the next day. So the next day, he spent the night in the city. Would you sleep very well if you knew there was a mob of people that wanted to murder you in the city? I would not sleep very well. So the next day, he, got, he left, uh, he and Barnabas, and I don't know why, if you're really into reading this, Barnabas totally gets a pass in this. Barnabas is with him, and I don't know, is, like, did they start chucking rocks at Paul and Barnabas is just like scooting off to the side? Like, I don't know that guy. Whatever it is, he's with him. And so they go to this next town, a little town called Derby. And they preached the gospel in that city. This is verse 22. Won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, all the places that he had been chased out of town. They went back to those places. That is absolutely crazy. This is not the way you behave unless your fundamental relationship with death had been changed. Death, evidently, wasn't the same sort of deterrent that it would be for most of us. And this is what he says. This may be a scripture that is familiar. This is verse 22. People had to have been asking, like, Paul, what are you doing here? Do you not know that you're a wanted man? And in verse 22, he says this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It seems that the most natural impact that the resurrection would have or should have on our lives is this idea that maybe we will come back one day, that maybe death is not the end. And I, I think that that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable to talk about or think about, but to know that the resurrection has power to transform our relationship with death. The resurrection has power to transform our relationship with death. Now, generally speaking, we have a strange relationship with death, right? We don't, we don't like to talk about it very much. 
Uh, I decided in light of this sermon, I was going to ask my little guy about just about death. I thought maybe it's important to talk about this. And I know some of you are like horrified, like why would you do that? But it is a part of life and I just wanted to ask him some of his thoughts. And he's like, I don't, he was like, I don't think it's going to be very fun. And I, you're, I think you're right. That's probably, that's a good observation. But we have a strange relationship with death. Either we don't like to talk about it uh, or think about it. And the, one of the reasons I know this is true is consider the many euphemisms that we have for death. I have a, a short brief list up here that I'll post on the screen. All the ways that we don't actually have to say they died. We can just say other things. Some of them are more irreverent than others. Or, conversely, if we enjoy talking about death too much, that might be a red flag. So either we don't talk about it, or people talk about it too much, and either way, it's bad news, right? We better go to the next slide, because I think I've lost all of you. <laughs> You're just all sitting there. Good job reading, though, man. That's excellent. Excellent work there. The resurrection has the power to transform our relationship with death. I was on a, uh, a flight um, a while back, and the, I don't fly a ton, but the attendants had started the drink service, and that's my favorite part of the flight, right? And I'm always, I'm always trying to figure out, like, where are they going to start? And they always start at, like, the opposite end of the plane, and it takes, you know, another two hours for them to get to me. But they'd started the drink service and sitting there waiting for them to, you know, ask me, and I, I, don't, I, always, uh, I always ask for ginger ale when I'm flying, and so I'm waiting, 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 waiting my turn. I don't, wanna, I don't want them to miss me. I want that, you know, I paid for the ticket. I want the free soda, so... Um, we hit, a, we hit a little bit of turbulence, and the captain, you know, put on the seatbelt sign, okay, you know, just a little, little turbulence. I'm not familiar with flying very much, so I, I don't know. So what I do when I fly is I look around at other people to see how they're reacting to the situation. Okay, everybody looks pretty calm. All right, this is fine. This is normal. All right, no big deal. No big deal. Well, evidently, we then hit some serious turbulence, like come out of your seat type turbulence, you know, where the seatbelt's the thing that's holding you in and you're like, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. It got serious. So I start looking around, like, are we, how should we react? And I'm looking at different people. And the lady next to me has got a death grip on the, on the, uh, the armrests. And now, I have never seen this before. Maybe those of you that fly quite a bit have. The, the attendants had started to put the carts away, but the turbulence got so bad that they stopped that, they locked the carts down, and they went into a crouching position in the aisle, the, the attendants. And I was like, oh, I think this might be bad. <laughs> this, and I'm, I don't know, I don't know. And I'm like, this might be it. This might be it. Somebody behind us started screaming. Which you can imagine, some of you would as well, right? Some of you would scream for much less than that. But they started, they started screaming, and I'm like, okay. And so I'm like running through my mind, like, all right, what's the checklist? And I don't have one, but what's the checklist to get ready for? If this is the end, what do I do? I can't call, you know, I'm on an airplane. I can't, what do I do? Do I, do I pray? I mean, how do we go through this process? And we're, we're going through this turbulence, and the turbulence probably didn't last, I don't know, more than 10 seconds. But I have to believe that everybody on the flight, including me, is at least toying with the idea that this might be it. The lady that screamed sure was, and the person sitting next to me sure was. And they attend, the flight attendants looked like they were too. I mean, they were on the ground. I had never seen this before. So I think people were probably praying. They were probably thinking about loved ones. They were probably thinking about their regrets and their hopes and their dreams. And then the turbulence stopped. And to me, 
The strange thing wasn't how people reacted thinking that the flight might be going down. The strange thing was how people reacted after the turbulence stopped because everything went right back to normal. Everybody just got their iPads back out. The flight attendants got up off the ground and resumed drink service. Would you like some peanuts? And I'm sitting there thinking like, we, all, we almost died. Shouldn't that have changed something? Now, we didn't almost die. I get that. But we were thinking about death in a way that we don't normally have to face it in that moment. And it was so quick, right back to normal. Why do you think that is? Because I don't think we like to think about that. We like to divert ourselves with Netflix, music, the book, taking a nap. Because even though we're thinking about it for a moment, once that moment's gone, we're right back to normal. Just within 30 seconds, everybody was just back to normal. And I think it may be because we're so uncomfortable thinking about death. But it's important to note, the resurrection has the power to transform our relationship with death. And I think one of the best verses to describe this idea is in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and 15. And what we're going to do in the remaining time, uh, it was a long kind of introduction, and, and in the remaining time, we're going to kind of just walk through this, this quick passage and explain how the resurrection can or should transform your relationship with death. All right? Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, we are the children, and we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I'm going to share an illustration with you that is totally, like, it works for me. It may not work for you, but I'm hoping it does because you're going to hear it. That, that I think just helps me just, like, this all locks into place with this illustration. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. All right, this is deep, like, theological stuff that we could talk about. Now, this may not be news to some of you, but churches sometimes form these things called uh, church sports leagues. Have you ever heard of these? Church sports leagues. And the, the idea is, is that a bunch of different churches get together, and they all go play softball or volleyball or basketball, and they actually have tournaments and trophies and all that. I've played in, in a number of different church leagues. And a church league is super interesting because theoretically, all these people are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be super nice, wonderful, loving, kind, gracious, patient people. But you put them out like on a softball field or a volleyball court or a basketball court, and it's just like uh, we just revert like back to whatever natural, feral state we, we, you know, we, we existed in. And, uh, and there, there's another thing about church leagues is that you're, you're doing these, they're all interdenominational. So you're playing against like the Baptists or the Methodists. And there's a, there's a little more at stake, right? Because like, well, do, does the Methodist way of being, you know, following God produce vel better volleyball players? You do, whose side is God really on? Like, I mean, I know none of you would ever think that, but that goes through a few people's minds. You're just wondering. So me and some college buddies decided to join a church basketball league, and it was actually just a tournament, just a Saturday tournament, and we're just a bunch of nobodies, right? We're just like, whatever, we can, you know, whatever. We're not like 
trying to do anything wonderful or amazing. So we joined this league. We happened to know one preacher from another church that had also joined the league, joined the tournament. And if you can imagine a basketball player, imagine physically a basketball player. They're tall and they're slim and they're athletic. Imagine the opposite of that. And that was this preacher. And so us buddies are like, well, you know, hey, we may not win this thing, but we won't come in last because that guy. I mean, what is that guy going to do? What kind of team is he going to pull together? So we get to the, uh, the Saturday, and we show up, and that guy, the opposite of the basketball player, had gone to his local college, this is during the offseason, and he had recruited four other actual basketball players. So we show up in our ill-fitting, you know, shorts and our, you know, shoes that we haven't worn in years, and we're like, okay, we're here to play. And his team, during warm-ups, they're dunking. And we're like, oh, no. Oh, no. So guess what? We lost decisively and dramatically. The end was never in question. We didn't actually have to play the game. It would have saved us all quite a bit of humiliation from actually losing in that, in, in that way. Now, we're just like, oh no, you know, this is, we don't stand a chance. And, 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 and I totally apologize for, for this illustration, but to me, this helps me understand what's going on. We are in a battle with an enemy. And the enemy has a secret weapon. And we cannot overcome that secret weapon. Our team, our human team, we cannot do it. We cannot defeat death. And the enemy keeps just like grinding us into the dirt, one after another after another. And we can't do anything. And then for some crazy reason, Jesus decides to join the human team. He puts on the jersey. He joins our team. He becomes like one of us, and he's unstoppable. He scores all the points. He kicks all the field goals. He runs in all the touchdowns. Nobody can touch him. Nobody can stop him. Like, we get to share in the victory, but we didn't really do anything. It was all Jesus. We didn't even need to be on the field. We get to hoist the trophy, but we didn't even contribute to the win. In fact, in the vernacular of Scripture, we were often scoring points for the other team. That's the way that this works. And Jesus comes along and he's like, don't worry, I'm going to win this for you. I'm going to join your team. I'm going to become a human like you. I'm going to become flesh and blood. I'm going to share in your humanity so that by my death, I will break the power of death. We get the Super Bowl ring, but we're not even a backup punter. Man, we didn't do anything. We did nothing to contribute to the win, but we still get to enjoy the victory. That, that totally, I'm like, oh, that makes sense to me. That totally makes sense to me. Jesus was our ringer, and he is unstoppable. So this is, this is where this starts, this idea of Jesus breaking the power of sin and death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the second part. He says, of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. That is the devil. Now, we might talk about the devil, Satan, the enemy, among other Christians. But we would not, you might be willing to bring up Jesus and God on your workplace, but I doubt you're bringing up Satan very often in the workplace, right? Right? 
some, you don't get some contract or something falls through and you're just like, mm, the enemy is at it again. You don't, we, don't, we don't do that. You wouldn't do that. Because, in fact, in, in, outside of this group of people, talking about Satan feels a little bit like maybe talking about Bigfoot or UFOs or some other government conspiracy. It just feels too weird and outlandish. And maybe we would buy into the idea personally or maybe we think that that's true. But outside of these walls, we might struggle to, to, to really like feel like that might be true. And maybe some of you in here are like, I don't know. I mean, I can get behind the idea of God, but the idea of Satan, I, I just don't know. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I buy into that. Now, the caricature we have is this guy with red tights and a pitchfork, right? We inherited that idea from popular culture. Just put that idea right out of your mind of, of who this entity is. It's not, it's not, that's certainly not from the Bible. I think most of us have either read the news or maybe you watched a documentary, or maybe you have personally experienced something in your life that was so evil that the, the badness of the person doing that doesn't explain the fullness of the evil that is being exhibited in that moment. I, I know that there's some stories that I've heard. There's sometimes news articles, I see the headline and I'm, I just can't read the details because what is contained in there is so evil. It is so evil. It's, it's, it's almost hard not to think that, yes, humans have this selfishness and this darkness and this badness, but it's almost hard not to think that there's this malevolent force that is just like magnifying the evil that we see around us. It's hard not to believe that. Now, if we can get there in that extreme, then maybe it's, it's not quite as difficult to believe that there is an evil force personified as Satan that can work in and around and through the people around us. Maybe not to that degree, but maybe it's not as hard to get there, to believe that there is this, this, this enemy that has this weapon this, that just holds us in check. It keeps us from doing things that God is asking us to do, the devil. The early Christian writers clearly believed in a world that included these unseen spiritual forces. So that's the devil. Verse 15, and he says, And free those who were all their lives held in slavery by their fear of death. Held in slavery by their fear of death. I, I would just want to offer two things as we begin to wrap up this morning. Uh, number one is this. The fear of death doesn't necessarily look like a fear of dying. The fear of death doesn't necessarily look like a fear of dying. Maybe that's what you think of when you read a verse like that. Maybe you think, well, I'm not really afraid of dying. That's not how the fear of death always manifests itself in our lives. And this is, this is valuable. I, I, I was thinking uh, of a variety of ways, but one in particular that came up, I was taking my kid to a uh, doctor's appointment and I was waiting in the lobby and they've got those old magazines you thumb through, you know, and there's never anything interesting, but I'm thumbing through this magazine and I come across this full page advertisement. Go to the next slide if you would. This full page advertisement that's said, aging is optional. I'm no doctor. I don't know how biology works, but that seems like false advertising, right? Aging is optional. And the whole, it's a whole full page thing, and you can get injectables, and whatever halo laser is, and aesthetic services, and whatever in injectable for chin fat. So if you have some chin fat, you can, you know, whatever. You can, aging is optional. We don't have to age anymore. In fact, this isn't the only thing, like, it took me about two seconds to find our, our, our culture, can I just say this, our culture has a crazy, unhealthy relationship with aging. 
It's, it's not, it's like so ridiculous, it's, you can't do anything but laugh at it. Here's an advertisement for uh, skin cream. <laughs> what they're saying is this, this woman on the left, that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable to look like her. Isn't that tragic? This is our society saying it is unacceptable to age. But what is acceptable is buy our skin cream and you'll look like this person on the right. That is crazy. That is crazy. This is absolutely insane. And you know what? We don't bat an eye because it's just part of our culture. We don't, and it's not, just, it's not just women. Don't think that it's just geared toward one sex. There's, there's advertisements for men out there too. The poor actor, the poor model who had to play the old guy who's like, you're going to look like the guy who doesn't use our skin cream. Can you imagine that? This is so crazy. This is crazy. I actually, when I was doing, like, I took, literally took me about 10 seconds to find all this. I found this, and I don't know how the internets work, but now in my social media, I'm getting advertisements for this product right here. <laughs> I don't know, maybe my camera took a picture of my face or something like that. But it's disturbing. Is it not disturbing to say that this guy, that's unacceptable. We don't want to look like that guy. You don't want to look like that guy. You want to look like that guy. You don't want to get older. You don't want to tell people your age. You don't want to value the elderly. The Bible has such a different perspective on aging. And one of these days, I just want to preach a whole sermon on it because the Bible says so much good stuff about the value of aging. We have turned that on its head and we value youth in such a crazy, unhealthy, literally abusive way. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And you can't, is aging optional? Absolutely not. Because this is what they're doing. It's not, about, it's not about just looking young. It's about desperation and trying to grasp onto something that can't be held. And you can maybe sacrifice your looks and you can, I, and this is not a tirade against plastic surgery. I don't care about that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the fact that we in our minds and our hearts think that something about getting older is bad. You know why we think it's bad? Because it's leading us close. Now, are there advantages to being young? Yeah, you know, <laughs> all right, youth group. Did you, did you know that when you're older, you can injure yourself being asleep? Did you know that? You can wake up sore. You're just like, what? I don't know. I slept. It, I just woke up this way. This is also true. And you guys will know this. This is absolutely true. There comes a point. You hit, you hit a certain point. You guys are a uncomfortable, I see. There, you hit a certain point where you stop trying to figure out why something is hurting, why something is wrong. And you know what the people around you just tell you? You're getting old. You don't, they don't even try to say, oh, it's this or this. You're, you're just getting old. That's happened to me. I did a little something to my knee, and you know all the sympathetic people in my life? Well, you're just getting old. What if I actually injured myself? Like, it could actually be it. Nope, it's not that. It's age. Now, are there advantages to being young? Absolutely. But is it bad to get old? Not unless you think this is the only life that we have. If you think this is it, then yes, it's terrifying to get old, get all the plastic surgery, use all the skin creams. Because if this is all there is, and youth is all you got, but if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that a human came back from the death, from his death, you will too. You will too. 
And we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about it. So being, the fear of death doesn't necessarily look like the fear of dying. And listen, aging is not optional, okay? Aging is not optional. But secondly, being free from the fear of death isn't uh, only about how we die or only about dying. It's about how we're living. And this is, this is incredibly important. And this is what this verse is telling us. Uh, is that he's talking about the ways that we choose to live in this life. And the fact that that impending threshold of death is coming can control our choices. And he's saying you don't need to let it control your choices. Uh, Christian preachers, revivalists, we have this reputation for, uh, and I have not done this, at least very often, but sometimes going up to somebody and be like, uh, well, do you know where you're going to go when you die? You know, that's kind of our lead question. And, you know, we're like, I would just like to take your order, sir. You know, what kind of hamburger do you want? And, you know, we're just, you know, we get, we get a little excited about that. But a better question than do you know where you're going to go if, if you die tonight, what would you do? The better question is how might you spend your life now if you believed you have eternity to live? Hmm, got to think about that. How might you spend your life now if you weren't desperately holding on to something that you felt was falling through your fingers, if you felt like you had eternity to live? Paul talks about this. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a verse you're familiar with. He says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. And he's saying, if it's only about here and now, we've been living all wrong. If it's only about here and now, I've been doing this all wrong. I shouldn't be out here risking my neck to tell people about the gospel. He says in verse 30, jump down, verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour if this is the only life that we have? Why would I? He goes, I face death every day. I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I would boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, I'm going to boast about facing death. Verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, well, that's a story, Paul, what happened there? He doesn't give us any details, but he's saying, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. With, if I had no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, he quotes an Old Testament verse out of Isaiah chapter 20, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And what we would say is let's binge Netflix for tomorrow we die because this is what this life is all about. Our fear of death isn't only about how we die, but it's how we live as well. But if you believe that you have access to unlimited life, and I think it seems counterintuitive to to most of us, but you might actually serve people that you weren't going to get anything back from. You might actually love people that won't love you back. You might actually give without expecting anything back. If you believed you have eternity, if you truly believe that, I think about this all the time. I think about, man, there's things in my life that, that I wish I could do, places that I wish I could see, but, but unless I sacrifice these other things now, I'm not going to get to do those things. Sometimes, unless I sacrifice my relationship with the church or my relationship with my kids, unless I sacrifice that, then I won't get to achieve these other things. But if I believe I only have these 70 or 80 years or whatever it's going to be, well then, yeah, you see why people sacrifice their families for their careers, because they need that achievement to have some validation in this life here and now. But if you believe that you are going to live eternally, it's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame. So two questions as we wrap up. What might be different about life now if you believed that life wasn't a limited commodity? Second question. In what ways does the fear of death keep you, or is the fear of death keeping you from wholeheartedly following God? As we wrap up, I just want you to know the resurrection has the power to transform your relationship with death. Many of us in this room have not allowed it to. We haven't allowed it to because we are living just like our culture, assuming that we only have so long. 
But the resurrection has the power to transform our relationship with death if we will let him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are grateful to be here. God, we are grateful for the life that we have. We are grateful for the years that you're going to grant us. But help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have prepared eternity for us. And help that affect the choices that we may make today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.